and what you have done through your son, that it's all done, it's finished in your son. God, I pray that that be our motivation to want to follow after you. Lord, as you expose our sins, you expose what you have forgiven. And God, that is a joy. So Lord, remind us of that. Encourage us in that. So we could be uplifted and tell the world about you. Not because it's our duty, but simply because we want to, because we know the wonder of knowing you and how this world is so lost from you. Thank you for loving sinners such as us. And Lord, help us to love the sinners in the world so they can know your love. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so today for our context, Paul is at the point in this letter here where he is starting to deal with issues directly going on in the Thessalonian church. And our text today is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. He's going to cover some major a major sin issue of sexual immorality that's happening among sinners. And this is not a light subject. It's a very wretched one. And as we look at how Paul here exposes this sin amongst them and speaks about it and condemns it, there is one thing that I want us to see in light of all this that will help us repent of such sins in our life and, help, uh, and to help us help others repent of such sins, such sins in their life but also encourage us in the Lord. And that one thing that shines really bright from this text is the grace of God towards his people. For as we go over this text, I pray that you can see how deep and how wide God's grace is, how it has no end, how truly Christ has forgiven our sin and has fully restored us to God so that we can have rest in this world, real rest, all by faith in Jesus. So our title is Understanding the Depth of God's Grace. So let's look at our text. Paul here says, at the first part of verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now with Paul here, speaking of the will of God, he's not saying this is the full will of God. He's not saying this is everything that God wants for you. For, God for God's will has many things he wants for us. Like, for example, he wants us to evangelize the world and to make disciples of every nation, as it says in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. You see that on the screen. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Another part of God's will is that he wants us to give our tithes and offerings, but cheerfully, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Or even to love our enemies. This is another part of God's will. Luke, as it says in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So Paul here then is not giving the full extent of God's will, but one aspect, a highlight of his will for them, as it is with us, and that's their sanctification. So just on a side note, Throw this out there. 
Though God's will is mysterious at times in her life, we say, like, what, Lord, are you doing? There are direct statements given in his word of what God's will is for you. Well, I don't know what to do. Well, look in the Bible. God's word is not some abstract thing that you have no access to. You are blessed with great access, and that's the scripture. It's his word. So Paul here says, God's will for them is sanctification. Another way of understanding this word is holiness, which is which a whole series of sermons can be preached on. But for our context, what Paul is saying here is that your sanctification, your holiness, is that God has called them, God's will is that they grow in separation from sin in their life as they live upon this earth. For in Christ, by faith in him, they are already holy or sanctified before God as their state or status before God. As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification, holiness, and redemption. So Paul here is saying God's will is that you live out what you already are in Christ. You are holy, so live out the holiness or live out holiness in all that you do, in all your relationships, all your actions, all your thoughts and investments and whatever. God's will is you do it all with holiness. Or to be less abstract with this concept of sanctification or holiness, it's basically this, to mentally and emotionally and willfully live by conforming to the distinct ways and character of God in all things. And one of those ways to do that directly, like right now, is what Paul says here at the end of verse 3. He becomes very blunt. That you abstain from sexual immorality. And the word abstain here, just to make sure it's clear, means to be completely free from. And the word sexual immorality, again, means any sexual interactions mentally, emotionally, physically, that's outside of a biological male and biological female marriage. Abstain! So Paul here, essentially now, has given them the law that they are to be completely removed from any sexual sin in their life in an absolute sense. They are to separate themselves fully, not just partly, not just kind of from any type of sexual immorality, but all of it. And I want to make sure this is clear. This includes intentions. This includes thoughts. This includes what you see. This includes emotions, too, not just physical touch. And what Paul here is saying, it goes right along with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 28. Jesus said this, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And to drive this even more in, Paul then expands to make sure his point is, is clear and they take what he's saying as serious 
as we should do. He says in verse 4 that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. He's saying, look, we individually, each of us has a personal responsibility to look into how we are to pursue the ways of God in dealing with people in this matter of sexuality, no matter what type of interaction it is. From the personal, so you're talking to people, to the impersonal interactions, like images, whatever. This is not a subject to which you are to look into within yourself and do whatever you think is right. This is not a matter of a culture that you grew up in. This is not a matter of the standards around you, but it's a matter of living according to what God wants and has set for us. You are to look into what God wants. And by using the word body, Paul is referring to the whole you, your mind, your heart, your will. So you are called to think about how you are to live in such a way or in a self-controlled way, in a way that reveals your set-apartness, your holiness in the Lord that you already have in matters of any type of sexuality. You are to live in such a way that honors the Lord with all matters of sexuality, is what Paul is saying. As compared to where he says in verse 5, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. See, what Paul is getting at here in verses 4 and 5 is that non-believers, they don't know God. They don't know God on a personal level as him being their father. And they don't care what he has stated in his word. So the world, the non-believers, the world just acts and does what it wants in this matter of sexuality. And the passions of lust, whatever they want to do. There's no ultimate standard. There's no ultimate way of going about it or even presenting it. It just changes with the time. It changes with the culture, whatever they want. They invent new ways of going about sexual immorality because the goal, the goal is to please, is to please themselves with no real regard for God and his word. They don't care. But for the Christian, the Christian, for example, the goal of sex, as pleasurable as it, it is, and as much as it is as a blessing from the Lord, it's meant to be done in accordance to God's ways and holiness and honoring him. As personal and as intimate as this is, of a subject it is, it's there to glorify God. And you glorify him by following his ways and standards. How do you know his ways and standards? You go to his word. Constantly. Constantly. Because in today's world, sexual immorality is not a hidden thing. It's very much promoted. It's seemingly present in almost everything, from media to your computer to ads to your phone to billboards, even sports. Historically, and historically here, it was very much pr promoted the same way back in Thessalonian times too. 
Sexual immorality was very much a part of the culture of that time. It was disgusting, and I can't even, I can't even repeat some of the things that just went on back then. So our culture, their culture, there was, there, there's just sexual morality is very much of a connection. This is why Paul says, each one of you know how to control his own body, meaning that ultimately the responsibility is upon you in how you deal with all these temptations. For wherever you go, guess what? There you are. And you know what avenues allow for that type of temptation to come about. I don't know necessarily. You do, though. But through reading God's word, you can also know what boundaries to set up in your heart to not go there. So when Paul says then in verse 6 that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, Paul here is basically saying to them, stop sinning against each other in this area of life. This is not right. It doesn't matter what the culture is. Just stop. Remember, they're having issues, and Paul's now addressing that. We're coming to the part of the letter where all the things he's finally talking about. And Paul here has just given them the law in an absolute objective sense with no loopholes, abstain from sexual immorality completely. But as we know, and maybe this may be the first time, the law has no power. The law has no power within itself to change anyone. You can tell someone, don't do it. Guess what? They just do it more. Don't do it. Guess what? They start thinking, they start thinking about it more. It's just, that's just what happens. I mean, you see with my kids, please do not touch this. Touch what? That? Oh, I never even thought about it. And then next thing you know, that's all they want to touch is that one thing I said, do not touch. And they just go for it. They say, stop, because the law can't change people. The law cannot change the heart. It actually, it just basically exposes what's in the heart. So then does Paul then move on to the next set of problems and gives them more law, leaves them the law here and moves on? Nope. Instead, Paul now leans into the gospel of the grace of God to motivate and change their hearts to grow in holiness or to, for them to grow in their sanctification that God has declared for them, that they already have in Christ. So I'm going to read verses 6 through 8 so you get the big picture. Paul says, starting at the end of verse 6, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, Whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, right in the beginning here, this, not, this probably sounds a bit horrifying. Paul says God is an avenger, a punisher of such things. He will bring about justice against the sexual and moral on Judgment Day, as Paul has warned them. I know, you, I know you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, I thought you said Paul leans into the, into the grace of God. This sounds more like his wrath. I thought we are going to see the depths of his grace, not his wrath. But I say, actually, you are seeing the depths of his grace here in this passage. 
seeing truly how gracious God is over his children. Because when you look at this again, Paul here is saying that these are the objective sins that God hates, the sexual and moral sins God hates, he will bring judgment upon those who commit them on the final day. But that's not what's going to happen to these Thessalonian believers. Their judgment was met in Jesus, even though they commit such sins. See, Paul is saying God is going to punish all the non-believers who do such sins on judgment day. So why on earth would you commit the same acts as them? Or put more bluntly, Jesus died and has forgiven you of the very sins you are committing. Why would you want to pursue them? For you already know that non-believers who don't have Christ, who do such immoral acts, are going to be punished in hell for eternity for doing them. So why are you keeping doing it? We warned you about what's going to happen to them. That's what he's saying here. You might say, wait a minute, are you sure, John? Is Paul really saying this? Well, yeah, look at verse 7. He calls the church, the people he's talking to who are struggling with this, he says in verse 7 that they are called by God. They are believers. They are the called out ones. And their call was not to impurity, but to holiness. To live set-apart lives unto God following his way. Which is another way of saying, don't continue in sin, which they were doing. Don't continue in sin that grace may abound. You may have heard that verse before. But to leave their sin behind in pursuit of following after God out of the gratitude for what he has done for them in Christ upon the cross. And you'll see later in chapter 5 that Paul says the Thessalonians were not destined for destruction. He'll say that later. See, the punishment has been done in Christ. So he says... Following, to follow God out of the gratitude what he's done for them in Christ upon the cross, the one who already took their judgment. See, Paul here is reminding them that they don't have to face judgment, the judgment that's coming because of their sin, because they are called to God unto holiness now. For Christ has faced all their judgment for them by faith alone. And they're completely free from the power of sin in their lives. They don't need to give into it anymore. That's not your call. That's not, you don't get anything from it. Or you shouldn't be. Now you still may be thinking, are you sure, John? I say, yes, I am. Because verse 8 stresses this even more and really exposes the grace of God to them so that they'll change their heart in this subject matter. And he says, this is what he says, if they ignore this willingly, they are choosing to reject not the opinion of man, but to re reject God. But a God who will not reject them, even with their sin. Because, as Paul states here, 
rather than reject them, which he could have very much stated that, he says this, God graciously gives the Holy Spirit to them who is the seal of their salvation because of their faith in Christ. Or or a more direct way of looking at it, God faithfully is always blessing them with the seal of the Holy Spirit, keeping them as his own even though they are unfaithful to him in this area of life. They still have the Holy Spirit in them. For it is truly finished in Christ over them as it is finished for us all by faith alone. And that is what Paul is getting at here to change their hearts as with ours to repent of our sins. He is pointing to the gospel saying that, look, even as you sin against God himself in this, God has not left or forsaken you because of what his son has done for you by faith in him. You are fully forgiven of your past, of your present, and your future sins. So turn to him to help you change your ways that have been exposed by his law. Don't ignore it. For you are holy in Christ now before God. So look to him to have you live as his holy ones in this area of life and really all areas of life. Because every time we sin, we ignore God. For his Holy Spirit is in you and is there to enable you to live differently in this area. As with everything, to fulfill the very commands that God has set. He has given you the Holy Spirit to enable you to move forward in holiness as you depend upon Christ. Because later he'll say, don't quench the Spirit. He's saying, dwell upon what Christ did for you out of love for sinners who had no love for him. That is what's called to melt our hearts and change us and them all by trusting in Christ alone. And that, by looking at him, you will be enabled to follow his ways and overcome sins, especially in this area of life. It will become more disgusting to you. And even if you fall into it, you will have a disgust. And that's growth. Having that disgust. Saying, oh God, I did it again. And you'll say, I know. That's why I sent my son to come into me. I'm not going to let you go. So now we're going to take the Lord's Supper.